And on behalf of the law school, along with uh, Dean Dolan and the Ross School of Business, we'd like to welcome all of you to the beautiful Blau Auditorium for this very special event. Today, we have the rare and special opportunity to hear from Charles T. Munger, one of the towering figures in American business, who is also one of the most principled leaders in American business. He's gonna share his views about many things, including how the economy got into its present state and where it might be going. And in a few minutes, I'll tell you a little bit more about Charlie and our wonderful guest moderator, financial journalist, Becky Quick. But first, I would like to introduce President Mary Sue Coleman, who has led the university since being appointed its 13th president in 2002. President Coleman, as you know, has launched several major initiatives that will have a lasting impact both on current and future generations of students, for the intellectual life of the campus, and even for society at large. These include the interdisciplinary richness of the university, student residential life, the economic vitality of the region, ethics in society, and important reforms concerning the delivery of healthcare. Under her leadership, the university conducted the most successful fundraising campaign ever for a public university. She is a national spokeswoman on the educational value of diverse perspectives in the classroom and has held many impactful leading leadership positions in higher education. A biochemist with a distinguished research career, Mary Sue Coleman is a fellow of the prestigious American Association for the Advancement of Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Please welcome President Mary Sue Coleman. Well, thanks to Evan, and welcome to students and guests and faculty, and our special guests, Charlie Munger and Becky Quick. I really appreciate the opportunity to share a few thoughts with you because I've had the privilege to work with both Charlie and Becky. Many years ago, Charlie was a student here at Michigan. He studied mathematics. Much has happened in those days before World War II, and today, in recent years, we have reconnected. I am so pleased that for both Charlie and for our students, particularly our law students, that he has taken an interest in the University of Michigan. Through his work, his advice, his resources, he has enhanced the beauty and the function of our law quadrangle with a gift that brought about new lighting and as Charlie says, there are not many donors who would fund a lighting project. <laughs> but Charlie saw what light can do, both aesthetically and intellectually, when you're engaged in academic pursuits. Light brings clarity, and Charlie Munger is one of the clearest, sharpest thinkers of our time. He relies on evidence and data, and he uses them to make extremely astute decisions. He is legendary in the investment world. Many of you have seen a book that he has co-authored with uh, Peter Kaufman, his friend, Port Charlie's Almanac, which is now in its third edition, The Wit and Wisdom of Charles T. Munger. And if you haven't read it, I suggest you go look at it. It's filled with gems about insights into the business world and in life, and it is a wonderful, wonderful volume. I'm so pleased that he is with us today to share his most valuable of commodities, advice. Becky Quick has the task of managing this afternoon's conversation. 
A year ago at this time, I had the pleasure of taking part in a Council on Competitiveness panel discussion on energy that Becky moderated, and I got to know what great insight she has. As we know from her work in television and CNBC, she is smart, she's always well prepared, and I anticipate a lively conversation. Welcome again to all to the University of Michigan. Evan? Thank you, Mary Sue. I'm now pleased to more formally introduce our program uh, participants, beginning with Becky Quick. She is the co-anchor of Squawk Box, which is the signature morning program on CNBC. She previously covered, covered the Wall Street Beat for the network, which she joined in 2001. Before joining CNBC, she was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where she covered retail and e-commerce and various internet issues ranging from online privacy to domain name disputes. She also played a crucial role in the launch of the Wall Street Journal Online in 1996 and served as the site's international news editor, focusing on foreign affairs coverage. She earned her BA in political science at Rutgers University, where she served as editor-in-chief of the school newspaper. Please join me in welcoming Becky Quick. And our special guest today is Charles Munger, who for more than three decades has been the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, the diversified investment company chaired by Warren Buffett. Born in Omaha, Charlie entered the university as an undergraduate, uh, as the president said, as a math major, attracted to that field, I believe, by the logic and reasoning required. At Michigan, he took a science class in which he encountered physics, and ever since then, he has held physics-like problem solving in the highest regard. He left the university to serve in the Army Air Corps in World War II, and after military service earned a degree from the Harvard Law School, magna cum laude, and then went to California to practice law. In 1962, he co-founded the firm that is now known as Munger, Tolls, and Olson. During this time, he became a serious investor, first running a successful investment partnership of his own, and then joining forces with Warren Buffett. The success of Berkshire Hathaway is well known. But behind the headlines are the values by which Charlie has conducted his own professional life. Patience, hard work, and rational thinking. In short, the principles of his personal hero, Benjamin Franklin. And like Franklin, Charlie has sought to use his own self-made resources for the good of others, and has had many long-standing charitable involvements in education, healthcare, and the arts. As President Coleman indicated, we at the law school are extraordinarily grateful to Charlie for his $3 million gift that allowed us to transform the lighting in the public areas of the building, most notably the outstanding reading room. Another interest that Charlie shares with Benjamin Franklin is that of lifelong learning. He reads several weeks uh, books a week. He remains passionate about learning, teaching, and always problem solving. I suspect that if you're looking for the secret of Charlie's success, you might find it right there, an ongoing quest for knowledge and wisdom that remains central to his life. And I might add that one of Charlie's favorite quotes applies to himself as well. Ability will get you to the top, but it takes character to keep you there. Please give a warm Michigan welcome to our great friend as well as a great character, Charlie Munger.
Dean, thank you very much. And thank all of you for coming out today as well. It's uh, great to see so many people here. Charlie and I have talked about this, and we'd like to make sure that uh, you have a chance to get in on this conversation as well. So we are going to have times where we'll go through the audience, and uh, if you have a question, you can raise your hand, uh, throw something at me, try and get my attention. Uh, but we thought we'd just start off and, and talk a little bit about the economy. Um, Obviously, it's a, it's a very difficult economy to try and gauge, but Charlie, you've got a very good perspective as the vice chairman of Berkshire with so many different companies. What, what would you say that your best guess is right now when it comes to the economy? Well, let me start with a qualification. Warren and I have not made our way in life by making successful macroeconomic predictions sure. and betting on our conclusions. Our system is to swim as competently as we can, and sometimes the tide will be with us, and sometimes it will be against us. But by and large, we don't much bother with trying to predict the tides because we plan to play for the game for a long time. I recommend to all of you exactly the same attitude. It's kind of a snare and a delusion to outguess macroeconomic cycles. Very few people do it successfully, and some of them do it by accident. When the game is that tough, why not adopt the other system of swimming as competently as you can and figuring that over a long life you'll have your share of good tides and bad tides. And so and with that qualification, of course, everybody has some ideas on the economy. But I want you to understand that these ideas do not have the credibility of anybody who's successfully made macroeconomic predictions. In other words, they may not be worth very much. But I will be surprised if employment bounces back with the wonderful speed that it did after previous economic dis disappointments of the one we've been through. I just see business after business after business, which is rationalized so that it can do creditably in terms of protecting its balance sheet and, and its earning power while utilizing fewer people. So this is a bad market for easy employment compared to the conditions which have existed most of the time in recent decades. And some of you are going out into a bad market. My attitude toward that is very simple. I think you should all just say, so what? There are good tides and there are bad tides. I have a long way to go. And, and we know from the example of other people that if you constantly stand well by your own generation and cope with competency and grace with whatever life deals you and just keep doing it, your share of the honors and emoluments of the civilization in due time are very likely to come if you deserve the emoluments. And of course, that's the other advice. The best way to get what you want in life is to, to deserve what you want. How could it be otherwise? It's not crazy enough so that the world is looking for a lot of undeserving people to reward. <laughs> well, let me and, ask and so you just, you keep plugging. So I wouldn't be discouraged. I told a group this morning about an example of what I call a real bad employment market. My uncle Fred graduated from the Harvard School of Architecture with great distinction. And in the 20s, he 
had a very successful architectural practice in Omaha where he did churches and little buildings and houses and so forth, and he made eight or $10,000 a year, which was an enormous amount of money to make from credibly performing the architectural profession in the 1920s. When the 30s came, the architectural permits, building permits in Omaha, would sometimes go down to $30,000 per month for the whole city of Omaha, and some of those were furnace repairs. There was exactly zero work for architects, including my distinguished architect, Uncle Fred. He moved to California, and in California, he took drafting work at low rates for a few architects that still had some work. And when it got worse than that, he went to the county of Los Angeles. And in the agony of the county, they classified him as a laundryman to save money, but had him do drafting work, which after all was exercising his skill. He didn't think it was beneath him. He coped as best he could. He never complained to anybody. And his pay after deductions all through 31, 32, 33, 34, 10808 per month. Now that wasn't as bad as it seems because he rented a whole house in Glendale for $25 a month. <laughs> when they created the FHA in 1936, he could take a civil service exam, at which he was first. So for the rest of his life, he was the chief architect for the FHA in Los Angeles, a responsible and interesting and, and civilization benefiting line of work, and he had a long and happy career doing that. He never got discouraged. He never thought what he had to do was something he should wail about. I never heard him complain about anything. Uh, woe is me. Generally speaking, there are two things I've found in my long life one you never do. One is never feel sorry for yourself. If your child is dying of cancer, don't feel sorry for yourself. Never, ever feel sorry for yourself. And the other thing you never want to have is envy. That's the only one of the deadly sins you're never going to have any fun at at all. <laughs> Pick one of the others. <laughs> and so, but if you go through life just everlastingly plugging away, at these bad times. You know, Kipling has gone totally out of vogue because it's not politically correct to write lines like a woman is only a woman, but a good cigar is a smoke. It's, and of course, so nobody is familiar with Kipling, but Kipling's if is still great poetry. You know, if you can keep your mind all about you are losing theirs, just think of what good advice that would have been on Wall Street and a lot of other places recently. And treat the little fluctuations in fate, he said, treat those two imposters, success and failure, just the same. And in the end, he says, well, if whatever else happens, you'll be a man, my son. Good message. Good message. I mean, why not take these opportunities, these hardships and so forth, to make a man of yourself? or a person of yourself, to use the modern lingo. And, and so I know how you should cope with whatever the difficulties are of the present day. Just keep your head down and do your best. And, and do Some of the people who had the best careers in, in my age cohort and the age cohort just before mine were the ones who had the worst clobbering in the 30s because they were there when the great boom came.
if you just kept plugging why the, the favorable tide came in due course. Well, so much for, for current passing troubles economically. I do think that the job market is likely to be fairly lousy for a long time, and I do think that the, the worst of our troubles in certain markets are not over. Which, which markets do you think? Well, I think the universities that thought they were making successful investments in timber because they were all buying the same groves are still in from some disappointment. And I think that the worst in a lot of real estate ventures is still ahead of us. And so I think there's plenty of pain out there still to come. That doesn't mean we won't pass through. It just means that there's plenty of unpleasantness still ahead. Do you think that the job market is as difficult or is going to be as difficult now as it was back in the 30s? How, how do we put this on some Oh, it's nowhere near as bad as it was in the 30s. This, sort of this is hog heaven compared to the 30s. This is, no, that was unbelievable. I lived in the 30s. We didn't have this social safety net. You know what people did in the 30s? What? They moved into one another's houses. That's what families were for. It was a Confucian system. My grandfather cut his house in half and moved one of my uncles in. And my other grandfather saved his son-in-law's bank using a third of the only good assets he had on earth. And it was just pain and trouble. And without a family system, it was, it was difficult. But the people who plugged well and just kept going eventually did fine. And so... But I, but I think there's still plenty of trouble ahead. Why, why I don't think it matters if you're going to live a long life. Yeah. But why it do may you be an advantage to, to have some trouble. Why do you think that the job market's going to remain lousy for some time to come? Is it just that there's not demand that's built up? Is, the, is it that companies have downsized, they can see they can get by with less? Well, Tom Friedman said it's like the car that has to run across 300 miles of hot desert it doesn't have a spare tire. We've kind of used all the standard tricks that it's safe to use, and now we still got the damn desert to go across and we don't have the spare tire. So it's, of course it's weak. But why fret too much about what you can't fix? Just keep your head down and do your best. You know, a lot of the students that are in this room could be here from the business school, and there's a, a, a real sense uh, around the country at this point, that uh, Wall Street is a bad place. There was a column today in the New York Times that Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote, where he sat down with Oliver Stone, who's got his new movie coming out, Wall Street Two, And he asked, he, he said, you know, I don't think Wall Street's an evil place, maybe Goldman Sachs. But, <laughs> but he does think that there are some serious bad guys who populate Wall Street. What do you think about that? Well, if you're in a miasma of competition, and to use the word that is so popular, greed, and you, you attract very competitive people, and they're thrown into this miasma, of course there's gonna be more regrettable behavior than you might find in a monastery or at least than we thought we might find in monasteries before we <laughs> understood them better. And, the, and so of course Wall Street is gonna have more regrettable behavior. And 
And, you know, Lord Acton had this law that you all taught that power corrupts and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Well, the Munger version of that is that easy money corrupts and really easy money tends to corrupt absolutely. And I don't think it was good for Wall Street that they had this absolute torrent of really easy money when idiots and knaves were making a fortune selling shoddy mortgages with ridiculous theories. And it, was, it was very regrettable behavior. And, and it was the easy money that allowed it. And of course, the adults who could have fixed it, like the accountants who, who had ridiculous standards without which a lot of the bad behavior wouldn't have worked. The accountants utterly failed us. And by the way, there's practically no sign of any intelligent reversal of, of that failure of that profession. I have yet to meet many accountants who are the least bit ashamed for their contribution to our recent troubles, but it was immense. Imagine when Enron comes down to the SEC and says we want to write a little contract with A and a little contract with B and take all the profit we're going to make from these complicated contracts over the next 20 years into earnings immediately and put an asset on our balance sheet of $28 million from signing two pieces of paper. And the SEC, led by wonderful accountants that had studied in great places, why, of course you should have that kind of accounting. What the hell were they thinking? <laughs> How could anybody have any respectable understanding of human nature? without realizing that the kind of people who are going to be tempted by that accounting were not going to be able to resist the temptations. It was disgusting. Yeah. And they're not ashamed yet. So I think How many people have you heard lately talk about how ashamed our accountants ought to be at our recent troubles? Yeah. Nobody's blaming them. They assume it's like addition. It isn't like addition. The system of accounting for the bad debts of banking banks is carefully set up so at the top of every boom the bad debt rate goes to zero. Who but a nutcase would have that kind of an accounting system? I mean, I'm not making this as a joke. This is not a parody. These are the accepted accounting principles of your nation. Why do you think that has not been the focus? And do you think FinReg and Basel III are a joke? Well, partly the establishment accountants want to please the people who are writing the checks. And partly the academic accountants get full of people who overdosed on mathematics and they want everything to be in balance. And they don't think that that really isn't rational in creating rules for a human behavioral system. They're too mathematical and not, and not rational enough in dealing with their fellow humans. You can't give the average Wall Street CEO really lenient standards of accounting and expect the figures to be good. The accountant is like the referee in soccer. The accountant has to be the adult that prevents the mayhem. The accountants don't want to be the adults because it causes liability, it causes responsibility, it's difficulty in life, they have to be good at things they're not sure they know. There are a lot of reasons why they shrink from it. But it's their duty under God, and they failed us terribly. That, that makes we, built, like we lost the referee. That makes it sound like those CEOs are inherently bad people. 
but they won't follow the rules themselves unless there's someone there with a stick to beat them back in line. Well, I do think the CEO culture is likely to promote people who are very competitive and very driven and very aggressive at accomplishing what they want to do. And that means if the guy down the street is doing something that enables him to report more, they want to be like the guy down the street. They can't help themselves. They're that competitive. I don't believe in being that competitive. I believe it's part of human merit to know, like Kipling, you don't lose your head when everybody else is losing theirs. If somebody else makes a lot of money or reports a lot of money, let them. You know, I, it's, it's this envy thing. It's pernicious. And, and it has caused a huge problem and a huge danger for our republic to have all these people competing to report phony earnings. Do you think they were really earning this money from this mortgage trading? Look at the write-offs. Are you really earning money when you put something on your balance sheet that really isn't there? When you reach for it, it will fade away like mist? What the hell kind of a system is that? It's an utterly irresponsible system. There's you can't blame the miscreants as much as you can the adults who were, whose duty it was to prevent the miscreancy. It's, somebody said you can't blame the tiger for behaving like a tiger. You gotta have a gamekeeper. Does that mean we should also look at Washington and the regulators? Well, if you think the accountants behave poorly. <laughs> Washington set a new record. I have a rule for politics, which has served me well in making predictions, and that I quit claim to you. The politicians are never so bad you don't live to want them back. So all of the drama that we've watched unfold over the last two years, all of Washington's attempts to try and figure out what happened and to prevent it from happening again, you think it's all been for, for naught? No. Uh, uh, what we have is way better than nothing. In particular, if you take the rules, which most people in my political party object to, for making the commercial banks behave a little better in dealing with fiscaholics who can't really handle things like checking accounts. I think that the changes that have been made are all to the good. And my only objection to Elizabeth Warren, who is not in my political party, is that she isn't tough enough. Why do you think that that is something you feel but your party doesn't? Why do you think your party doesn't agree with you on this? Well, I think all politicians tend to behave badly under the peculiar pressures of their trade. So I think they've chosen a profession where it's hard to behave well. Um, if it's hard to behave well and you're in a miasma of wrong incentives, so you get a lot of bad behavior. I think we're lucky the system has worked as well as it has. In my state, we have a thoroughly gerrymandered legislature. So if you have to be an extreme nut on the right or an extreme nut on the left or you're not allowed in the legislature. And there are 10 sane people that creep in in every decade. At the end of the decade, the right and the left agree and throw them out. <laughs> and this is the biggest state and the biggest country in the, 
You know, this is a very, very regrettable set of circumstances. How well are you going to behave in that kind of a system? You get so you hate the other people in your chamber. You need this ever-growing tide of money. You can't really tell the truth as it is because you'll offend various people that are important to you. It's a miracle it ever worked as well as it did. I suppose it's better than absolute de despotism, but sometimes it's a little close. Did you see the news today that Cuba said it will be laying off about half a million people from the government jobs there, pushing them back into the private sector? Is this an admission that maybe despotism doesn't work either? Oh, well, no, this is, we're way better than Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about dysfunction. They, in East Germany, where they, the best five million people left, because they were allowed to and because the conditions are so bad, and the remainder were put under communism, communist police state for 60 years. I always say about that, that will even ruin Germans, which it did. And oh, if the system's bad enough, it will ruin the people in it. And there, two things work beautifully to ruin a aggregation of people. All the best people leave. That's a sure source of huge failure. Then you have the remainder under a total crazy bunch of people, like, say, the nutcase that runs North Korea. And, of course, that'll ruin anybody. Well, yeah, have you seen those pictures of North Korea at night? It's dark. They have starvation. In the year of our Lord, 2010, they have people starving in the dark. That's what communism will do for you if you work at it hard enough under a despot. Why don't we talk a little bit about some solutions? There is a huge push right now to try and figure out how to fix the economy and more importantly, how to fix the job market. The president has unveiled his plans over the last week um, in terms of some tax cuts that he's put out, some incentives. Do you think those are the right plans? Well, again, I'm sort of against my own party. I think my taxes are a little too low. And I don't think we needed the last round of tax cuts, nor do I think that hedge fund operators deserve to pay lower taxes than taxi drivers as a percentage of income. I think when you're that crazy, It's serious, and, and so, no, I'm not wild about the taxes. In terms of the jobs, of course, you remember, I, I lived through the 30s, and I was a very observant boy and young man, and I found it very interesting to see how that economy, which had 25% unemployment for a long, long, long time, and real underemployment, I mean, the architect doing drafting work, classified as a laundryman, he was a fortunate one. And, and I watched that thing be pulled out by this accidental Keynesianism of, of World War II. And it was a very interesting thing to watch. But there we had a spare tire. We had centuries of reputable financial behavior on which to draw. We could print money, we could do whatever we damn pleased to solve the problem. 
Now we've used those weapons so aggressively that it's dangerous to keep using them in ever-increasing amounts. And of course, that's what makes me, that's what makes me afraid. If you ask what I would do, if I were the benevolent despot of the United States, I would have the biggest infrastructure program you ever saw to, to uh, go to power from renewable sources. And by that, I don't mean corn. That was one of the most asinine ideas <laughs> in the history of the world, is to use corn for motor fuel. I mean, you can argue that the people that come up with that kind of stuff don't deserve hardly to be at the table at all. But, but the idea of, of rapidly going to the, to the sun, basically, and creating a vast infrastructure that will do it is a thoroughly sound idea. And we now know how to do everything that we need to know how to do. And I think the country would get behind it if people had had the sense to concentrate on something large and important and sensible. I think you could have gotten the country behind such a vast program. And I think not only we need the stimulus, I think we're going to need the whole infrastructure to use all this renewable power. So I think we had a chance to turn our lemon into lemonade, and we still have it. And so, but if, but if I were running the world, boy, would we be playing that card hard. And, and the people who weep about oil and gas, one of the interesting things about oil and gas is that the entire growth rate of China, which has been utterly remarkable in recent decades, has been achieved when their percentage of GDP spent on oil and gas is three or four or five times ours. So the idea there's something terribly to fear because we have to spend a higher percentage of GDP on oil and gas is so much twaddle. And the guy who says it is twaddle is not in the economics department. It's Dyson, the physicist, who's as old as I am. But Dyson is right. It does not make a big difference in the economy of the United States. It would in the short term, no, if you look at it as a tax on the consumer at this point when they're already in a difficult situation? I think it would be a net plus if we were plainly doing the right thing, if we borrowed the money and created the infrastructure. I think when we just borrow the money and shovel at people, it's dangerous. But I think it is less dangerous when there's something really meritorious you're doing with the money. I think the infrastructure is sure to be very useful. It's sure to be needed. It's going in the right direction. Of course, global warming, I think, is not the main problem. In other words, to me, the main problem is using up the hydrocarbons too fast. In order to feed the current population of the Earth, we need lots of hydrocarbons for insecticides, lots of hydrocarbons for uh, uh, weed control, and lots of hydrocarbons for fertilizer, primarily nitrogen fixation. And we don't have good substitutes for those. Even the plants that already know how to fix nitrogen, like alfalfa, we're goosing the hell out of with petroleum-based fertilizers. And so I think it's irresponsibly unconservative not to slow down on the use of the, uh, 
hydrocarbons. And the right way to do that is to just gear up massively. And I think it's a very legitimate kind of stimulus. I don't see why we all can't agree on it. And uh, I mean, who's against using the sun? With a lot of clean energy and so forth. Well, there, there still are questions, aren't there, about being able to store the sun's battery, the, the sun's power in a battery while it's nighttime. Well, of course, there are problems of, of, of time shifting power if you're going to create it from the sun or the wind, but they are solvable problems. If you take the most expensive, difficult way, which is pumping water uphill and taking it back, even that is not technically infeasible given a willingness to commit enough of GDP to it. And we may get batteries which are amazingly effective. In fact, I think we will. I think the big lithium battery. We do not go to the big lithium battery because lithium is such a light element, number three in the periodic scale. The reason we go to lithium is it will take an ungodly number of charges and discharges, which is what we have to have from these battery systems. And lithium is better than that, better at that than any other thing we know of. So I think all this stuff is, in a sense, the long-term picture is the best it's ever been. Because the main technical problem of, of mankind, you know, whether it's nine billion or 12 billion or whatever it's gonna be, is energy. With energy, there's no shortage of water. As we sit here, there sometimes Israel goes six months using half Half of, half of their water comes from the Mediterranean. With enough energy, there's never any shortage of water. And, and we are looking at a technical solution to the main problem of mankind, which is this energy problem. And the cost of it, considering our need, is not that great. And, and so, well, I'm getting way away from, but you, you, you can see at least what I would do. And, I don't know why everybody doesn't agree with me. <laughs> Are you okay with the president's plan, though, to take some of this money for infrastructure? He's got a six-year plan, he says, $50 billion in the first year, which is this year, to build bridges, tunnels, light-speed rail, other things like that. Is that a, a decent idea, too, even though it's not your idea? Generally, I'm in favor of needed infrastructure. Okay. But the one that really turns me on is, is changing the power source for mankind in a really massive way. And you see, take Burlington Northern, in order to carry all this freight at this much lower cost per ton mile, they double-decked all the trains. It means every tunnel had to be rages and ancient. We've done all that. That was a hugely desirable thing for the civilization to do. And if there's more of that that can be done, I think you're going to find that the stuff that's really needed over the long pole is, is pretty massive and is, is, is located in the energy sector. And I personally want to keep the hydrocarbons. I don't want to use up all the hydrocarbons. The rest of you may be so smart you think you're sure that man can grow all the crops we need and solve all the problems without the petrochemicals. I'm not so sure. I, I think that might be quite difficult. At any rate, why take the risk? It's not that big a deal to, to do what we ought to do.
if we didn't, if we hadn't got so diverted by going into these miasmas where there were enough crazy people on both sides so you couldn't get a rational solution no matter what, if we, if we deferred some of that stuff and saved our energy for the big one, we might have got the big one done. One area where you put your money where your mouth is on this front is with BYD, um, which is looking into battery-powered cars at this point, too. How close are we to actually finding solutions that can be rolled out uh, not only across our country, but other nations as well? Well, I think that solar power is obviously going to get considerably cheaper. It's obviously technologically feasible. It doesn't matter that much, as Freeman Dyson has pointed out, if it costs an extra five points of GDP or something. Now, that's two years gross if you get the system working right. Growth, I mean, it's, it's nothing. And, and, and so, no, I think all this stuff is coming. I just wish it had come faster with more rationality. And, and I think we've been distracted a lot by people who bleated about the wrong things. And I'm not sure somebody as technologically ignorant as Al Gore is entitled to speak on this subject. <laughs> you think there's any hope? I think you should have punched your ticket in a few better places before you open your mouth. Do you think that there's any hope, though, that we get past the idea where everybody is pushing their own agenda or their own idea, and even when you get to energy, you've got people who think it's wind, or people who think it's solar, or people who think it's natural gas, or people who think it should be nuclear power? Well, I think we'll end up with more of practically everything you can think of, but in the end, you have to go solar. There's not an endless supply of uranium, nor is it totally desirable to every, every little crazy hamlet have its own nuclear capability. There's a lot to be said for going directly to the, to the sun. And, and thank God it's as copious and as reliable as it is and as a source. I mean, think of how lucky we were. The people on Easter Island didn't have any sun to solve their problems. They basically perished when they used up their resources. This is one where our profligacy leaves us with a wonderful option that's never going to run out for us. This is a huge benefit. And the young people in the room ought to be rejoicing that the main technical problem of their civilization is basically solved. I don't mean it isn't a lot of work to work out the details, but, but we know how to create high voltage transmission lines with transmission losses of less than 10%. We know how to, how to do all this stuff. And the time shifting of power, we know how to do expensively. And I think we're about to figure out how to do it more cheaply. But if we had to do it expensively, it's doable. There's nothing that's impossible. And that is a blessing to all you people with a, with a long run ahead of you. Charlie, what's it, what's it been? Is it 69 years since you started here on this campus? Well, I left here 70 years ago. You left here 70 years ago. And came at 69 years ago, yes. And I must say that, and I must say that I'm very impressed with this campus. And I'm very impressed with, I like the culture as I found it then. And I think that the successors of the people who were then here have made it better. 
and they've created all this hugely, huge success while the civilization 60 miles away was sinking into a swamp and of difficulty. Not, not its fault, by the way. I think that was just the fate. But, but uh, Michigan is just amazing. You go into the University of Hospital of Michigan, and somebody makes a mistake, nurse, doctor, anything. There's nobody trying to avoid blame for the mistake. They come to the patient and say, gee, you came in for a simple procedure, and we screwed up, and you got a pretty bad result. And we're terribly sorry, and we want to make amends. You know what percentage of the hospitals in the United States handle their malpractice responsibilities the way the University of Michigan Hospital does? It's a tiny percent. I'm chairman of a big hospital. In my hospital, the lab, the insurer for the doctor and the insurer of the hospital are trying to blame the other one. In Michigan, they just admit they screwed up, and they first thing they want to do is make a fair adjustment with the patient, and then thereafter they look as to how to prevent the next one without a lot of recommendation. Now, isn't that a wonderful system? Who wouldn't be proud of being part of a culture like that? which is not the standard culture of the world, the, the culture of the University of Michigan University Hospital. So th there's a lot that's good here. And, and so I feel very good at, about coming back, particularly after I've just visited Wall Street or some, <laughs> some other place, which is different. You know, it's, it's hard to tell stories about Wall Street that sound like my story about the University of Michigan Hospital. <laughs> Um, they value a different thing there. They're more interested in financial gain. Yeah. I'd like to open this up a little bit and get some questions from some of you as well. And I have seen a few hands that have already gone up. I see one right here. I know we have some microphones in the room, so if you'll just wait for one second. And right here, gentleman in the green shirt, if you just raise your hand. Charlie, mm -hmm. a lot of the problems that we've been discussing so far um, from Wall Street to um, these bigger long-term energy initiatives and politics even are rooted in the fact that our country's set up on a short-term incentive system. Managers are always looking at what their earnings are going to be next quarter at the top of companies. Politicians are always looking at what the next political point is going to score and then setting programs to develop well past their term in office. How do you propose to get past that and to shift our system from these short-term incentives and planning to a more long-term perspective, not just in our focus, but in how we act as well. Well, of course, of course we have a terrible problem with this, these very short-term incentives. And if you combine short-term incentives with very little moral reticence, of course you have a problem. And, and, uh, and it's hard to fix human systems without fixing human incentives. So you're absolutely right to focus on the incentives. Uh, and I think the existing system, as it's evolved, is quite perverse. A system is perverse when good people go bad because of the way the system is structured. If you run a big chain of stores and you make it easy to steal by your own sloppiness, you will cause a lot of good people to go bad. You will have created an irresponsible system. 
and assist them with these irresponsible incentives, of course, is geared to cause trouble. And you point out that it does and has. And, and uh, no, I, if I were benevolent, I would change the whole system. But nobody's going to do it Munger style. And you, you people, young people, are going to have to live in it the way it is and attack it piece by piece. But you were right. That is a that is a very serious problem, both for the politicians and for the executives and everything else. I don't think it is required, because the rest of the world cares terribly about the next quarter's earnings. Berkshire doesn't care. So it isn't everybody that cares. Now you can say we carefully structured our system and our lives so that we didn't have to be under crazy incentives. I do not trust myself well enough, and I behave better than most, to have a lot of perverse incentives on myself to do bad things. Much better to set yourself up so that the temptations are low. And so, yes, we should structure the system differently. I don't think it works at all to pay the directors a lot of money and write a big long thing like Sarbanes-Oxley. The more you pay the directors, the more they'll pay the CEO. The ordinary rules of social psychology require that result. And at Berkshire, you pay directors nothing? Practically nothing, right? Because we don't like the culture. So it's our quiet form of rebellion. We say, we've examined your procedures and everybody's out of step but Charlie. <laughs> it's like the old story about the man who's out in the freeway and the wife looks and she says, oh my God, and she calls him on the cell phone and she says, oh, it's terrible. There's a car going the wrong way on the freeway. And the guy answers, a car, he says, there are thousands of them. <laughs> well, at any rate, everybody's out of step with Charlie. And, and, but I think we should change all these incentives. But I don't think the nostrums that we're using are going to change things the, the enough idea, to put in your eye. The idea that you are not near Wall Street, Berkshire's offices are not near Wall Street, does that make a difference? Is it easier to operate to, on your own manner if you're not as near your competitors? Well, we like to think that being Middle Western boys, we had a better culture, but that may be a conceit. Uh, I do think if you get in a crazy place with a lot of competition and a lot of perverse incentives, it's hard to keep your own sanity. My father used to tell a story on himself, which was a very good story that I never forgotten. He was a graduate of the Harvard Law School and practicing law in Nebraska, and he went up to shoot pheasants in South Dakota. Everybody he was with was signing up as a South Dakota resident to save $5 on the hunting license. But the crowd, everybody was doing it, and it was $5, a lot, a lot of money back then. And he said, he almost signed the damn thing. And I said, my God, this is some kind of perjury, and I'm a practicing lawyer. And he stopped himself, but he came close. So when the culture starts to go wrong, we're all susceptible to be dragged along. And therefore, it's a very good habit in life to develop what Kipling you know, to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. It 
It's not, I've been doing it all my life. Everybody's wrong but Charlie. It's caused me some trouble. <laughs> but it's also created a lot of huge advantage. And it's not that bad, I've reached out. And the trouble you avoid, think of the people that went along with Enron and committed suicide and got disgraced and it, it just, it, it, I think that this whole business of, if you avoid it yourself, you try and seek out the right places to work, you're very unlikely to go south in what's important in life. If you work in the University of Michigan Hospital, you know, that's likely to work. You don't have to go all the way to the slums of India helping Mother Teresa, you know. You have had a more convenient place right here where there's not a lot of crazy temptation. But if you go to a place where everybody is stark raving mad and pushing and crazy, and, and it's very hard to to not get sucked along, as my father was almost sucked along into signing a, some kind of perjured application for a hunting license in South Dakota. We can all drift into that stuff, but we don't watch it. Yeah. I think I, I have seen two college presidents in my life go down from too much laxity in the expense accounts. I've seen quite a few ministers go down from, from various miscreancies and we're all subject to this stuff. It's easy to drift in the wrong direction. And I have a rule in life, which is adopted from going down a river with big whirlpools. And there's a big whirlpool. You don't want to come within 20 feet and just make sure you can barely miss it. You want to go around by 500 yards or something. And so I think this stuff where the culture is crazy, you don't have to enter. And if you find you've accidentally entered, you can leave. You know, and, but even better than that, if you're shrewd, you can see where the culture is not gonna tempt you. Where you're working with people you admire and the values are sound and it's fun to do. And by and large, you can worm your in, way into that place. And I will give you a tip as to how to do that. And, the first decent matter I brought in as a piece of lawyer, as a piece of legal work as a young lawyer, was for a guy who'd been fired by a bunch of venture capitalists, and I got him rehired, and we bought the company. And it was a huge success. <laughs> I never heard from them. You know, they were glad to do it, but they were busy. And so one day I said, well, I'm being too damn shy. And I just about to enter the freeway in Pasadena, and I made a U-turn. I went back and I walked in and I said, well, I really like working for you guys and just the kind of people I like to be associated with and I like to work for. And sure enough, they had another big problem that I could solve. And, but if you, if you figure out the people you really want to be with and work for and you tell them so and why, it is likely to cause a favorable result. Anyway. Do we have other questions as well? I see a hand right here. Uh, what happened to the accounting profession? For, for those sitting in the back of the room, the question is what happened to the accounting profession and what can be done to try and fix it? 
Well, partly they sold out. Partly they legitimately fear the liabilities that would come if they had to make more difficult judgments. It's a very, very difficult problem. You know, it could be done by changing laws and rules very easily. And it would cause an enormous upheaval in America, which would be hugely to the plus. 99% of the troubles that threaten our civilization come from too optimistic accounting. And yet these damn accountants with their desire for mathematical purity want to devote exactly as much attention to accounting that's too pessimistic as they devote to accounting that's too optimistic, which is crazy. 90, way more than 99% of the problem is from being too optimistic. And therefore, we should have a system where the accounting is way more conservative. And where an accountant at the SEC, when Skilling came in with his crazy scheme for mark-to-market accounting, I don't call it mark-to-market, I call it mark-to-myth. And that accounting was blessed by an accounting firm which perished and deserved to. And, and so, but that's another subject. That's something I'm, I'll be 87 years old in January, you know, if I make it. And you may, you're going to have to fix the accounting. <laughs> 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 I'm like Moses. I'm pointing the way at you guys. <laughs> You guys have to do the fixing. Yeah. I see a question right here. Yeah. Uh, there's a microphone right behind you. Much easier. Um, given that you think the system is still rapidly, bro uh, rather broken, your outlook for the unemployment is still rather dire, and given the last 10 years of returns and what we've seen, would you recommend someone who's young to put their limited savings into the market, even given the long-term time horizon? Well, long term, I'd rather own common stocks I pick than government bonds at the present rates. So that's an easy question for me. What you should do with your own life depends on your own opportunity costs. How likely it is you're going to need the money suddenly at an inconvenient time and a lot of other subjects. Uh, generally speaking, I would say that if in the last Look what happened in the last hundred years. Well, say the, say the 20th century, 1900 to 2000. GDP per capita, hard to measure, because what's it worth to have your children live instead of die because of vaccines against diphtheria and so on and so on. I mean, but the net increases in living standards and in human options between 1900 and 2000 were simply awesome. When you take the big picture view instead of the short picture view, think what came. Widely distributed electric power, television and radio, the ability to get in your own car, move around where you wanted, cheap travel by jet all over the world, air conditioning in places that are unendurable in the summer, Widely distributed information. It's just unbelievable what happened. In no previous hundred years did anything remotely comparable happen. Are all those forces gone? I don't think the next hundred years 
is going to do as much because those are such huge achievements given human needs. Once you've got the right temperature and the right usage, you know, you're getting into frou-frou when you get into the, the improvements from that point. But, but do I think there will be more improvements and more options? Yes. Do more tragedies? Big tragedies. You know, big death rates occasionally. I, th I don't think, I think the next hundred years will be very interesting for some of you people. And, but I think it's a good time to be alive. I think there's a lot of good that will happen. And when you look at this enormous big picture gain in longevity and behavior, the liberalized liberty for people in the underclass, liberty, more liberty for a whole sex, half the population. It was just incredible what happened. So I, I think to look back on that in a big picture way and be terribly discouraged is to sort of underestimate your, your species and your civilization. I, I, even, suppose there's a 25% death rate. It'll be a big deal if it affects you or your family, but apart from that, why, the Black Death was good for the survivors. <laughs> In other words, I think the, I don't think it's a, a time to be at all discouraged. Yeah. I see another question right here, and I think we can get the microphone. Um, by the way, oh, right here's a microphone. Would you just tell us what year you are, maybe? Which school you're in? Sure, I'm a 2L at the law school. Mm -hmm. uh, and my question is, you suggested that that you're pointing, but that it's our problem to solve. And I was curious, I've read a number of recent editorials that have suggested that our generation, my generation, is not up to the challenge that we've invested uh, and sent our, our smartest people to Wall Street and to law school instead of investing in math and science. And I'm just curious if you think my generation, our generation, is up to the challenge. Well, I think your generation will be up to handling a lot of the challenge now. More of the people who handle the challenge may look like Lilu than look like you. In other words, the mix may change. I think we're getting more Asian contribution to solutions than we had in, in, in my generation. But your generation will be up to it. And uh, the talent that comes along, I love to tell a story about Caltech. Caltech has a Rubik's Cube contest and one year, a guy won it. He asked for three cubes, and he juggled them like this. And as they went by in his hands while he was juggling, he solved all three. <laughs> and people thought that was a hell of an achievement. It would be hard to top. And the next year, along came a slender young woman. And she said, give me two Rubik's cubes. And she just held them in front of her and looked at them for a long, long, long time. Then she put one in her left hand one on her right, and put both hands behind her back, and twiddled, and took them out soft. Nobody has stopped that yet. <laughs> so there's a lot of competition in your generation, but it's only gone that far. If you can handle that much, why? <laughs> Do we have other questions? I see hands. How about right here? And again, if you can just tell us your year and what, what school you're in. Um, I'm a BBA sophomore. 
And uh, Charlie, you have talked about uh, high tides and low tides in the very beginning. And we are now in the low tides and the government and the Fed have used, well, their weapons really aggressively. So what would prevent us from getting into a stagflation, a stagnation that uh, Japan faced in the last 10, 15 years? And would it be a good idea to not to hold stocks, but to hold more gold or other commodities? And what do you think about that? Thanks. Well, what I think is I can't follow it. Um, uh, so there was a little echo or something. Oh, th th he was asking about, you, you mentioned the high tide, the low tide. Where are we right now? Would it be a better idea to um, jump into well, equities at this point or something like gold, which, by the way, hit a record high today? Oh, I don't have the slightest interest in gold. And I like working on understanding what works and what doesn't in human systems. To me, that is my, that's not optional. That's a moral obligation. If you're capable of understanding the world, you have a moral obligation to become rational. And I don't see how you become rational hoarding gold. Even if it works, you're a jerk. <laughs> so I advise you to get concerned with equities. Uh, let me rephrase the first part of my question. Uh, would we, would the United States follow the path of Japan in the last 10 or 15 years, the long term of almost zero economic growth? Well, the answer to that is, of course we could. It's like the man said about baptism, I believe in it because I've seen it done. <laughs> Japan has proved that an advanced nation can have a long period of utter stasis following a bust. Now, are we going to be like Japan? Or are we going to do better? I think we're going to do better. But I don't think if we have trouble, I don't think we'll handle it as well as Japan. Japan is a very courteous, submissive, amazing place. If they were going to have a long period of stasis, you could hardly find people who would handle it better if you selected over the whole earth. They have the right uh, behavioral ethos. to. Here, I think we'd have a lot more tension if we had a long period of no growth at all. And so I hope we, we aren't in for that. But if we did have it, in the big scheme of things, is that a tragedy? At the current living standards of the United States, would it be a tragedy if we held level for a considerable period? Well, by the scale of, the big time scale of human tragedy, that is not way worse as, uh, threatens. But yes, could that happen? Of course it could happen. It did happen. And remember, Japan paid every fiscal trick known to man and every Keynesian trick known to man. And, and, and when it was all suddenly they got 20 years of stasis. Now it's a different place, different system. We're different. It doesn't mean you can, but is it Conceivable, of course it's conceivable. It's conceivable because it happened. All right, other questions? Uh, how about we go here and then here? Right here in the front row first. Uh, I'm not currently a student, but I am a Berkshire shareholder and West Coast shareholder, so uh, it's, it's nice having you here in Michigan. It's always great to be out in Pasadena seeing you as well. I mean, the groupies have followed me here. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was kind of an old group. 
my question as it relates to the economy and as it relates to some of the issues, uh, longer term issues, we obviously have significant pension liabilities and significant health care liabilities, but more so to the pension liabilities. How do we go about trying to fix them? And how, given how underfunded a lot of municipalities are, how do we even come close? Well, of course, it's a terrible problem. And of course, there was some deep moral and behavioral failure. Those plans were abused by various mani manipulative tricks where people got very unfairly high pensions. And of course, that's what human nature does. You make it easy to steal, people will steal. And, and, th and that's what it amounts to when somebody gets $600,000 a year from some poor community full of, of, of uh, Latinos with low employment. A man in those circumstances is stealing. Doesn't, we don't call it stealing because he hires lawyers, but he's, he's stealing. And of course that's a big problem and it happens all over. And of course the unfunded liabilities they talk about our national debt as a percentage of GDP. The unfunded liabilities of the United States for medical care and pensions in terms of present value are far greater than the national debt that we report. So if we get into an, a, a Japan-type situation with no growth, we're in for a hell of a lot of social tensions. But isn't that wonderful for you young people? You get all these interesting problems to live through. And but of course it's a serious problem. I personally would not touch Social Security in terms of its present promises. I think net that's been a credit to our civilization. You know, it's worked with low administrative costs and low fraud and, and it's given a lot of people their main dignity and old age and and I think as long as we're as rich as we are, we should find a way to afford it. And I don't think the world comes to an end if we end up supporting Social Security promises with a value-added tax. Personally, I don't expect to live to see a value-added tax because I'm so old. But I think it's a very desirable tax. It subsidizes exports, which of course we need with a big balance of payments deficit. And that's the one legitimate way that's permissible to subsidize exports is to have a value-added tax which exempts exports. That's what everybody else has. We have a disadvantage now in terms of trade because of not having a value-added tax. It's a regressive tax, though, and you said you wouldn't mind if your taxes were higher. Well, I don't know how regressive it is if you... If you... If you use more of, if you're a low-income person, you probably use more of your earnings. You're forced to spend more of your earnings to take care of yourself. No, but there can be exemptions and credits and so forth. Or maybe the maybe the low-income people pay only the value-added tax, and the other people pay a value-added tax plus an income tax. But there's some different way of organizing the the, the tax system, and so. I don't think in a modern democratic civilization that it's feasible to do a lot to, to tweak Social Security way the hell down. I don't think anybody's going to stand for it, and I don't think it would be a good idea. Would you be okay if they slowly, hmm? if, they, if they gradually and slowly raise the retirement age? Would that be okay? 
Well, reasonable minds could disagree. I personally wouldn't do it. I would leave the basic Social Security alone and, and deal with all the rest of the things. We got so much trouble in all the rest, and it's so large, and the unfunded promises are so great, and there's so much misbehavior, that to take on the political ill will from tinkering with some guy who's only got three years to live anyway and take away $30 a month, or so, I just don't want to do it. It's, to me, it's a stupid allocation of goodwill and time. And no, I would save my effort for what really matters. And, uh, and uh, of course, we're going to have to tackle the, the unfunded promises. And, and uh, I think we're going to have to change our system of, of, of taxation. Uh, basically, you know, I lived through the period of 90% income taxes and the crooked, lying tax shelter salesman and all. I hated it. We do not want that back. I think a 50% tax, if a guy's a busy surgeon, is plenty to, for the man to pay. I don't care how much he's making. So I think the existing income tax rates are pretty close to right when you put the state and federal taxes together. Uh, on earned income, I do think that we went way too far in favoring people who manage hedge funds. I mean, the idea that, and by the way, they don't just get a 15% tax. They, they play tricks with foreign, they, they have all kinds. The tax of our successful one income class is really trivial, and I don't see any reason why it should be tolerated. I think it's unfair, and, and the man who said, are you dissatisfied to have all these math and science people going into derivative trading? Of course I'm disappointed. I have a letter I just got this week. The guy has all these advanced degrees in computer science and math and so forth. He works for a hedge fund and he has 300 million long and 300 million short. He's allowed to deviate between size of the total long and short position by no more than 2%. I think he has to have 300 stocks on each side or something. And he's using computer algorithms, sort of devised by code-breaking skills. And for six years, he has made money without knowing a damn thing about the companies or really any of what happens in capitalism. And, but he's a brilliant man. And he knows he's in a sick, lousy system. So he writes me this letter. He says, I'm in this sick, lousy system, and this is what I do. So what I want you to know, I only bought one stock and it's BYD, and I'm glad you bought it too. He says, isn't it wonderful what we're doing together? Well, that's my kind of a fruitcake. If he's... <laughs> At least he regrets what he's doing, which he should. And, but is it bad for our civilization to have this particular man doing that? When he's capable of figuring out which company is likely to contribute to the civilization and handling real high-tech problems like BYD? Of course, it's a huge misuse of talent. And if I were running the world, I would pass laws that would get all those people either selling apples on the street or doing something more productive. <laughs> we had another question right here. I told you, uh, yeah. The microphone is over here right now.
I think it's turned off. First, I'd like to say thank you for coming here. My name is Anita, and I'm a second year MBA student. I'm a student, I'm part of a student-run social venture fund, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on impact investing. So a few of your colleagues are part of the giving challenge, the giving pledge, excuse me, which is aiming to solve societal problems through charity. On the other hand, there are those who are investing in these issues of energy, education, and healthcare through investments that expect a financial and a social return. What are your thoughts on these type of investment activities? Well, that hasn't been my particular pathway. Generally speaking, I believe Costco does more for civilization than the Rockefeller Foundation. <laughs> you know, I think it's a better, it's, it's a better place. So you get a bunch of very intelligent people sitting around trying to do good. I immediately get kind of suspicious and squirm in my seat. So that may be a prejudice of mine, which isn't quite fair, but I've seen so much good in the world by people who really created better systems. And I've seen so much folly and stupidity on the part of our major philanthropic groups, including the World Bank, that, that I really have more confidence in, in building up the, the more capitalistic ventures like Costco. That may be just a crotchet of mine, and you may be right that your way is better. On the other hand, if, if I'm right, and you're as promising as I think you are, I think you'll end up like me. <laughs> uh, other questions? I see in the very back of the room right here. Sorry, I'm keeping the microphone people running. Okay, that's fair enough. I think you can count on more booms and busts over your remaining lifetime. How big and with what cyclicality, I can't tell you. I can tell you the best way of coping, which is just to put your head down and behave creditably every day. And I will say something about life generally. I was very lucky and I had an ancestor that I never met. My mother's grandfather was a pioneer. He came out to Iowa and he lived in a sod house with his young wife. That's a cave through two winters. And he, he literally was a pioneer from nothing. And he rose finally to where he controlled the leading bank in the town and, and was a very reputable citizen and a very charitable man. He joined Andrew Carnegie and gave the town library to Algona. My grandfather made him do it, my great-grandmother. He never would have done it by himself. <laughs> and he made him put his giant tarpon in the library as part of the gift. He, so <laughs> always amused me to go by that library and see this giant tarpon. So eccentrics come naturally in my family. But at any rate, <laughs> having wrested this success from hardship and danger and trouble, and he was a captain in the Black Hawk Wars. I mean, he was literally a soldier and part of this. 
he had this theory looking back at his long life with this unusual success. And he owned a bunch of farms at the end that he leased to Germans. Well, you couldn't lose money leasing a farm to a German in Iowa. Naturally, he was successful. And, and, but what he said over and over again to his grandchildren, including my mother, was that real opportunities that come to you are few. It's a very fortunate life that is just bathed in opportunity all the way. Most people just get a few times when they can make a huge difference by seizing a huge activity. And he said, when you find one, my dear grandchildren, and you can clearly recognize it, he says, seize it boldly and don't do it small. And my mother, who wasn't interested in finance, but liked to talk the family, she liked to transmit the family quirks. But of course, this guy was my soulmate, the great-grandfather I never knew. And of course, I totally adopted his point of view. And I must say, it has worked wonderfully. And so I quit claim my great-grandfather Ingham's rule to you. Assume that your really major opportunities in life are gonna be few. And when you get a Lollapalooza, for God's sakes, don't hang by like a timid little rabbit. Don't hang back. They aren't that many of the really big good ones. If you take the whole history of Berkshire Hathaway, if you take out the 20 best transactions, our record is a joke. <laughs> well, 20 best transactions over 40 some years, that's one every two years. And we work at it all the time. Life is not just bathing you in unlimited opportunities, even if you work at being able to find them and seize them. I saw another hand right here. Well, of course, you're talking about a really important phenomenon. The rise of Asia is an awesome force, and it's a tidal force. And if you're going to have free trade, which I think we have to have with a fellow nuclear power on the complex world we live in, you're talking about something that is very hard on a manufacturing place like Michigan. If you think about what happened to Michigan, think about the automobile business of Hyundai when they created it in Korea. For the first many years of Hyundai's manufacturing and competition with Michigan, the workers who were all Korean, and for some weird reason, were better on average than American workers, whether it's the Confucian ethos or their poverty or whatever it was, these were very reliable workers. And the terms of their engagement was as follows. Come into our factory. You work 84 hours a week. There is no overtime. You just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. Well, of course that's gonna be hard on a guy that's manufacturing a competitive product. And just when the Koreans start to get rich, a billion, 300 million Chinese. And I don't know how many there are in Vietnam, tens of millions. Oh, and they're all doing it. 
This is a tidal force. It's seriously disruptive. I don't see what we do about it. In terms of changing the educational system, I live in California. In objective standards, it's better than ever. But the faces are way more Asian in percentage than I see here. The Berkeley Engineering School, I think, is more than 75% Asian. I mean, it is just amazing how California is rising on the backs of these talented Asians. I am chairman of a big hospital, a bad location. It's a losing hand. I, I played the hand on purpose because I played so many winning hands. I thought I owed it to wear one hair, I owed it to civilization to carry one hair shirt and keep it on no matter how much it hurt. And I must say it's worked perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> but Good Samaritan Hospital is still standing and still reputable and there's much that's good at it. But I look down the faces that are doing it and the guy who's doing all the programming of the gamma knife which is very complicated physics. He's a PhD in physics from China. And there's Dr. Ho from Harvard and Dr. Chung. It's just boomity, 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 boom. And I've got a sea of Asian faces. So California is not going down. These Asian faces are gonna help us stem the tide, in other words. So, and I see a lot of Asian faces in this room. And so, don't you have Toyota here in Michigan? And You're getting some, but too, but not like California. But I just think you're in for a rapid change of the world where the Asians get way more important and we become less important. And I, somebody says to me, don't you worry about the competition for the mongers? And I said, no. If the mongers can't handle the Asian competition, let them lose. I don't feel I'm here in life to guarantee the mongers win against the Asians. I like the meritocracy. It's particularly when there's so much achievement. You know, if you st when I was young, everybody that showed a camera in my face, it was German. Well, this morning they were shoving cameras in my face. They're all Japanese. They earned the right to shove those cameras in my face. It wasn't easy to displace those Germans. It wasn't like the Germans weren't good at it. Hmm. So I welcome all this stuff. But I do think you're going to have to adjust to a world where this tidal force in manufacturing, with this cheap labor and this vast, easy adaptability to modern capitalism that exists in Asia, just keeps rising as a tidal force. And I think you have to get used to it. And wherever you turn around, you're going to find it looks more like the Good Samaritan Hospital where more of the faces that are rising are Asians. I welcome it. I know how much better my hospital works with all these Asian faces. And what the hell do I care if the guy's name is Wilson or Chung? You know, I like all these Asians. And when I go down to that hospital, 8.30 I'll sometimes go down to the guy who's programming the gamma knife for the next day, my Chinese physicist. There he is, 8.30 in the evening. He comes in early in the morning. And a gamma knife is a very hard thing to correctly pro program. So I'm all for this change, but I do think all of us face it and we just better get used to it. And, and 
I think part of enjoying life is to just see it like it is and face it like it is and adapt to the reality as it is, whether you like it or not. And the reality as it is, is that Michigan is not going to dominate the world in autos the way it once did. The baton has been passed. Athens is never again going to be the leader of all civilization. Nor is Rome. Nor is London. The baton passes. The iron rule of life in an historical sense is that if you're lucky enough to be in a leadership position, eventually you have to pass the baton. That's the rule of human systems. Biologically, we all have to die, and as successful systems, we eventually have to pass the baton. Those are the rules. And if you don't like them, you're on the wrong earth. <laughs> yeah. Could I ask someone what time it is? Because I didn't wear a watch. Okay, we have more time for questions. So why don't we go ahead? I, I have seen some more hands up, and I see people up here, and I'm sorry, I've been ignoring you. At Berkshire, we always excuse the people who can't stand anymore or have pressing other engagements. <laughs> and then we leave the groupies. And, you know, I'd still be in Omaha answering questions if I let them run my timetable. <laughs> I see a question up here from the upper deck. Uh, yeah, my name's uh, John Paul. I'm a faculty member at the law school and also a shareholder, too. And um, you, you speculated that Japan might be better to weather long periods of stagnation more equitably than we would socially in the United States. Sure. And, and I wonder, do you think we're starting to see some of the social fracturing in this country? I'm thinking sure, of, of course. Party movement. Is oh. this an anger that's unusual, or have you seen this a million times over your... No, 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 no. Of course we're seeing more trouble. There's a guy at Harvard that is... Uh, there's a Harvard professor, he's famous, he's so famous I can't remember his name, <laughs> but who has studied this, and he says these homogenous societies, like Japan, of course it's easier to run on a homogenous society than a one with a whole bunch of people with different religions, different attitudes, different cultures, different backgrounds, and so forth. So the nature of our situation means that, that handling politics in a society like ours and handling reverses is going to be more difficult than it was for, for Japan. I think that's obvious. And I think what we're already seeing is just part of it. And you know, in, in France they strike against the atomic plants. And it's, it's, it's there are all kinds of crazy cultures of, resentment, and it, I, I, I think that that is another problem you're going to have to adjust to, that if we are in for each some, it looks more like economic stasis, there's going to be a lot more social tension. How could it be otherwise? Take a rich family in a prosperous business that ever grows. They may hate each other, but they get along. The ever-growing tide of money submerges the natural antagonisms of the sibling rivalries. Now let the business start having reverses. I've seen this a thousand times. And the family business, the hatreds and troubles that come when the great fountain of ever-rising prosperity for all goes in reverse 
are simply awesome. Of course something like that tends to happen in the body politic if things get tough. But it gives you one more interesting thing to think about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you've got it exactly wrong. I think those bailouts were absolutely required to save your civilization and to give you the best chances of solving the housing and student loan and other problems. I think that was absolutely required, and we were lucky that both administrations were as wise and bold as they were. So I th you, you shouldn't resent that. You should thank God they did it. And I, I think if you understand the system and the dangers it was in, you would recognize that that's the least of that. That was your blessing. What, what would have happened potentially? We don't know, but it could have been awful. <laughs> I don't even want to think about how awful it could have been. And it is not completely crazy. The Germans were pretty civilized people. I always point out that Albert Einstein got a highly subsidized primary school education in Germany from the Catholic Church. This whole primary institution of little Albert Einstein was subsidized by the Catholic Church. That is a pretty civilized place. And we ended up with Adolf Hitler. Get the economy with enough misery, get enough disruption, destroy the currency. God knows what happens. So I think when you got troubles like that, you shouldn't be bitching about a little bailout. You should have been thinking it should have been bigger. I mean, those people were working for you, and they were in both parties. They were a credit to both of us that, 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 that all that happened. And now if you talk about bailouts for everybody else, there comes a place, if you just start bailing out all the individuals instead of helping to adapt, that the culture dies. I don't know where it is, but at a certain place, you've got to say to the people, suck it in and cope, buddy. Suck it in and cope. And in the 30s with my family, as these families would move into the same house, and they'd wear the same clothes for a while, and they, you know, just, they coped, and... And that was part of how the civilization got through. We do not want a civilization where with every hardship we go to the government and say, give me some money. The world's not what I expected. So I think there's danger in just shoveling out money too much on the, the people who say, my life is a little harder than it used to be. Of course it's a little harder than it used to be. This is normal worldly life. And I think it is very dangerous to assume that, that, that what people did to save the whole banking system was wrong, and that it is clearly right to shovel out a lot of money to people who are now short of money. Uh, I think we come to a place where we, where everybody has to suck it in and cope. Yeah. 
Uh, other questions? Do I see hands? Uh, how about right here? Is it a Ponzi scheme when Holland, which 30% of which is below sea level, creates a gigantic public work that creates 30% of the arable land and supports the whole civilization? Are people going to think less of Holland as a credit when they're borrowing money to prevent the North Sea from inundating Holland? I don't think so. I think if we're doing, if we're just shoveling the money at people, people will think we're a bunch of jerks, like Greece. And that is dangerous, because partly you need credibility in the world. But if we're issuing a lot of IOUs to do something any fool can see is highly desirable to do, and we're doing it through competent and honorable people, I think we're way safer. I think how you're spending the money matters greatly. I think reputation matters greatly. And I, I, I'm quite confident that the United States reputation would stand a major use of credit to do something everybody recognized as, as a wise course of action competently done. And uh, so I think the danger is, is shoveling out money to people who say they need it without limit. And the other thing is safe, and the other thing will solve hugely important problems. I don't know why everybody doesn't think the way I do. To me, it's obvious. I see a question in the back right here. Uh, my name is Joe. I'm a Ross MBA, and I'm doing a new degree at the University of Michigan Medical School. So I'd like to, I'd be glad to know what you think about the future direction of the healthcare sector in the United States and in some Asian countries like China. Thank you. Well, of course, China is spending a tiny percentage of GDP on healthcare, and we're spending a high percentage. In an aging, affluent civilization, where GDP rises at 2 or 3% per year per capita, I don't think it matters at all if we spend 20% of GDP on healthcare. I don't think it matters that much if 20% of the healthcare is no damn good that we're buying. You know, like Botox for women for whom intervention is hopeless. <laughs> and, and so, uh, Healthcare is a whole different can of worms, but, but I don't think it's our main problem at all. And I think it is quite natural in our particular civilization to, to uh, have a fair amount spent on healthcare. If you live to be as old as I am, I'm surrounded by people where their joints hurt so much the pain is unendurable. They're like the Tin Woodman. One hip, one hip, one knee, one knee. You know, I got a big infection, 30 days in the hospital. This is expensive. 
And but if that's the way the civilization wants to spend the money, I don't consider it a crazy choice. And so I don't. I, I am not. We do have a crazy system for healthcare, and there are perverse incentives. There's many a hospital in this country where the doctors are fishing the people out of nursing homes and bringing them into the hospital so they can walk by the bed and bill the government $45 a day. And if they've got 10 patients in the hospital, that's $450. And the fact that they're using up resources, which patients, which could be improved by the services, aren't being able to get. In my hospital, I have a little list, and so does the hospital. And those jerks are on their way out, and they should be. And so there's a lot of abuse in healthcare, and one of the ways you fix it is to, is so the people who have the power, they exercise it to prevent the abuse. A lot of places you have live and get live in a hospital. Just nobody really wants to criticize anybody. That's a huge mistake. It's a huge mistake. In our leading academic hospitals, I'm sure this isn't happening at Michigan, but I have a friend whose daughter is head of infectious diseases and something in some medical school hospital, great hospital. And of course, the doctors there are fishing the people out of the nursing homes and bringing them in so they can walk by the beds and bill. And they're bringing in these terrible infections. And that takes a lot of treatment and a lot of walks by the bed and so on and so on. And of course, the parents of this particular doctor recognizes she's sort of risking her life going through medical school because of the abuse of the system by some of the doctors in a hospital where nobody is stopping the abuse. You know, it's like Burke said, for evil to triumph in the world, all that is necessary is that good men do nothing. And But all over America, some people are intervening to stop some of these abuses. And, and you have to identify them, you have to rationalize, and you have to be willing to take the ill will. I have a friend, this is another wonderful story on human nature, chief of the medical staff, Southern California Hospital, and a bunch of non-board certified anesthesiologist who came out of, I forget the sub-branch of medicine, but it's not, it's not chiropractic, but it's, anyway, they got in control of the anesthesia department of the hospital. And he could see that they had created three totally unnecessary deaths and covered up every single one. And he knew it was just gonna ruin his life. So he, yeah, he got rid of them all. He changed the whole system. He ruined families. He ruined incomes. He cleaned house. And he told me the story 20 years later, and I said, what happened? And he said, to this day, none of the people I cleaned out and none of their friends has ever spoken to me. He was willing to take all that ill will to do the Lord's work and do it right. And you can say, why did he wait for the third death? Well, maybe he thought he needed that much horror to, to accomplish the fix. But, but all over America, there are stories like that. That's a good story about human nature. That's a story about, about 
wisdom and, and virtue triumphing. And, of course, they don't always win. Even in a bullfight, the bull sometimes wins. I'd like to give one more chance if there's anybody up top who wanted to ask a question because I realize I haven't looked up there all that often. Is there anyone upstairs who wants a question? If not, I do see some hands, I thought, down here. All right, you guys lose. Uh, how about right back here in the back? Hi, I'm a uh, second year student at the law school, so thanks for the lights. <laughs> and I'd like to follow up a question by a 2L uh, sitting over there. It was posed earlier. Um, I have also sometimes felt, oh, why did I go to law school? Why didn't I study science? You know, had that uh, liberal arts regret. Uh, but in a more positive sense, uh, since we're still young and optimistic, I think we have questions about what useful role we can play as well. And so I'm wondering, uh, the legal profession as a whole, uh, specifically directed to kind of our group of soon-to-be uh, new attorneys, any ideas for how to change the legal profession for the better to avoid crises like the recent one or just to make it a better system? Well, the legal profession has always been a way up for people who know they don't want to grind through the problem sets of science for six years or who don't like the sight of blood. And so, welcome to the club. It's one to no one. And, and it's always been a profession that allowed a certain amount of flexibility. You can start in the legal profession, and you can go in a lot of different kinds of activity within it, and you can leave the legal profession and go into something else. And that's what's gonna happen to, to your class, too. The legal profession, has been bifurcated in America in a very peculiar way now. The ordinary little lawyer in a small town makes $60,000 a year doing divorces and collections of minor wills and so forth. That's a pretty demanding, difficult way to make a living. And the lawyers in the really big, powerful firms were willing to work 70 or 80 hours a week for nine years and punch their ticket and rise to become partners. And then when you get to be a partner, you get to keep doing it. That's your reward, you get to keep doing it. And, and those people make a lot of money. Are there abuses in a culture that gets that money mad about billing hours? Of course there are. I see bankruptcy cases that remind me of a bunch of hyenas going at a carcass on the plains of Africa. It doesn't look to me like a learned profession at all. It looks to me like hyenas at work. And, and so there's lots wrong with the legal profession, but there's lots right with it. And there's enormous opportunities within it to live a very constructive life and to make a good living in a reputable fashion and to have various options to leave if that's what you desire to do. But of course there are abuses. I do not see a lot of abuses in the judiciary. I think we have an amazingly clean judiciary in America, and it's a blessing for us all. And every judge I ever knew behaved better on the bench than he did before. And they were usually pretty good people before. And so I think our legal system is, is really a, a pretty reputable system. I do think when you get into the part of the legal profession that's most closely intertwined with Wall Street, that you, 
you did get excesses and that were unpleasant. And, you know, Enron did not lack for enabling attorneys. And nor will a future Enron lack for enabling attorneys. And, uh, but that's always been true too. But, but net, I think it's a very interesting career. I started on it myself. I was born into it. My father and grandfather were both in it. My grandfather was the only federal judge in his city for 37 years. And, and, I, and boy, was that an efficient system. He was the only judge. <laughs> and people knew what Judge Munger would put up with and what he wouldn't. Just all kinds of things were not even presented to the court because they knew the answer already. And they didn't want to make points for being a horse's ass <laughs> in front of Judge Munger because he's going to be there next year too. <laughs> so, and I now in Los Angeles, you spin a wheel, and if you're lucky, if you have a wrong case, you'll get some nutcase who sympathizes with you. In Lincoln, Nebraska, you had no such chance. If you wanted to go to the federal court, it was Judge Munger, <laughs> you were in the wrong world. So I like that system, and and I like. I always like the systems where really good people get a lot of power and exercise it well. I like it when one guy makes all the orders for maintenance and domestic relation cases. He gets very good at it. And the lawyers know what they can't get by with. It's very efficient. I hate a world where everybody's just spending all these hours and hoping to God they get an ignorant judge or an ignorant jury. I think the idea of trying these big patent cases before juries is obscene. It's, it's a dishonor to the civilization, and it's, 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 it's not a legitimate human activity. Basically, you, do, you don't want a system where people form shop hoping to get an ignorant decider. You want a system that's different. And so you have a lot of things to fix if you get out into the legal profession, and, if you, and even if you don't fix them, you can have a highly creditable life. Start thinking of Abe Lincoln was a lawyer, John Adams was a lawyer. There's a lot of good models. You know how many cases Abe Lincoln had personally handled writing the pleadings? 5,000. He was an active practicing lawyer. Charlie, how would your career have been different if you went to business school instead of law school? Well, we don't get to live life on alternate career paths at the same time. And obviously, if I drifted into my present line of work at a younger age, I'd have more money now. <laughs> but so what? <laughs> You know, I always say this, they'll say when I die, how much did Charlie leave? And the answer will be, I believe he left it all. <laughs> in the end, you're, piling it up is not such a big deal when you have to part with it in the end. And so, uh, I do not regret, generally I don't think regret is a good, it's like envy and resentment, a lot of other things. It's just, it should be generally, I don't have a lot of regrets that I could have done it differently or that I had a failed marriage or 
I, I don't second guess the past. I try and learn from the past and make decisions of the future, but I don't gnash my teeth. I expect that any human being is going to make a lot of dumb decisions. And I've certainly made a lot of dumb decisions in my life, but not as many as most people. <laughs> uh, we have time for one more question. How about right back here in the back? Hi, thanks for being here. I'm a dual master student between the business school and School of Natural Resources. And uh, I have a question regarding rationality and behavior. You've talked a lot about it and also how systems are set up to encourage perverse uh, well, with perverse incentives. And if you could design a system, how would you uh, take into consideration human nature uh, so that it enables rationality? Well, I'm glad you saved that easy question for the last. <laughs> Plato failed at this question, you know. I mean, why can't some man well along in his 87th year describe a perfect civilization? It's a very interesting problem that our founders coped with and just how democratic you wanted the system. My favorite political system in terms of being adapted to its particular circumstances successfully is Singapore. I think Singapore is the single most successful governmental system that exists in the world. They've taken a small swamp from no to a very creditable place. They're doing the Lord's work in a number of very important ways. I'm sorry they're bringing in derivatives trading. Even heaven makes mistakes. But, but I, I, that doesn't mean I want Singapore tomorrow in the United States, but, but uh, I think the Singapore's habit of stepping hard on things that will grow like cancer is the correct way to govern. And in America, we tend to wait till they're unfixable and then we want to fix them. How well are you going to? If you won't attack a problem while it's solvable and wait till it's unfixable, you can argue that you're so damn foolish that you deserve the problem. And, and we have a system that is pretty irresponsible in many ways. And and, and, and I think our central cities get to be the hardest ones to govern on average. And, and I think that's very awkward. And finally, they reach a tipping point where you get this, the better people leave. And then I don't think you can solve the problem in any normal way, certainly not for a civilization as large as previously existed there. Or if you solve it, it's 100 years in the future or 50 years in the future or something. But no, I can't. I, can't. I don't think it's a pure democracy with a... I think our system has worked. Well, I should tell this story on myself. I come to the University of Michigan. I take political science. I'm an unusual kid. I don't mean I'm unusual looking or unusual dressing or something, but I unusually think often that I know better than the professor. This is not a social winner. <laughs> and I take political science from a leftist but lovable political science professor. 
And everybody teaches the more people that vote, the better the systems will work. And having a contrarian streak, I'm not so damn sure the civilization doesn't work better when a lot of people don't vote. And so I write a paper. It couldn't have been more politically correct. I got an A. The University of Michigan not only does right in the hospital, it handles wise-ass kids pretty well. <laughs> and, and, and so, anyway, the, I, I, I can't, if you, if you want to study, you take Singapore, a terrible malaria problem, it's a swamp. He drains the swamps. He does not care if some little fish dies. No. He has a drug problem. He searches the world over for the right solution to the drug problem. He finds it in the United States. Isn't that an interesting thing? Imagine somebody in Singapore reading books and deciding the United States was the answer to Singapore's problem. He copied the military's drug bottle policy. That anybody in Singapore will pee in a bottle instantly on demand, and if they flunk, they go immediately to a tough compulsory rehab. Away went the drug problem. Just time after time after time, he made these winning decisions. He wanted the place to be prosperous. He figured out who he wanted to come in, and he made the civilization very user-friendly to what he wanted to attract. And it worked. Then, it's 70% Chinese and 30% Malay. And every Chinese thinks that the Chinese are superior to the Malays. And he thinks that's terribly counterproductive if anybody should ever say so. So he passes a law. You can't say if you're Chinese in Singapore that you think there's any superiority in the Chinese. I think that's a very sensible law for Singapore to have. But of course it has some infringement of free speech. And, <laughs> But anyway, just time after time after time, he's done this thing. His, his approach to marriage was interesting. The average very successful man in the Asian culture marries an exceptionally good-looking woman who's somewhat dumber than he is. This is the system. Well, this guy was so smart that he was the second-ranked school student in his high school. And the student that was one-tenth of a percentage point higher was female. So he didn't follow the Asian rule of hiring the, the beautiful woman with the big boobs. He's a little dumber than you are. He married this woman who was a tenth of a point higher. And who is now the prime minister of Singapore? Their son. I mean, this is a very unusually successful man. It's a very unusually successful history. So while I can't answer your question, if you will make a study of the life and work of Lee Kuan Yew, you will find one of the most interesting and instructive political stories written in the history of mankind. This is better than Athens, better than this is, this is an unbelievable history. And you will learn a lot that will be useful in your own life. So my answer to you is don't ask Charlie Munger. <laughs> Study the life and work of Lee Kuan Yew. You're, you're going to be flabbergasted. Right, on that note, uh, I'd like to, <laughs> first of all, thank President Coleman for inviting us here uh, and having all of us. Charlie, I'd like to thank you for your time and answering all these questions, and of course, everyone here today for staying with us. Uh, we really appreciate all of your time, and uh, that's it. Thank you.